Welcome to the White Bikini. My name is Marie White, and joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Banton. How are you, Nicholas? I'm doing great, Marie. It's good to be with you once again. We are continuing in the theme of our Black History Month, and though today's topic is considered unsexy for Mr. Banton, I felt it was important to go over and really discuss Dr. Alice Stanford. And Nick, how much did you know about her before I brought her name up? Very little. I know that there were some headlines in the news that referenced her in order to assuage the concerns of black people to take the vaccine. But beyond that, nothing. And are you like me a little embarrassed? I am. Yes. And it's not only a personal embarrassment. I think it's a broader cultural embarrassment that someone who has done such amazing work is not being celebrated. I think it's a failure, not only on a personal level, but on a broader level, because we're celebrating Black History Month and nobody knows about this person. Yes. George Washington Carver, fantastic. Frederick Douglass, fantastic. But I think one of the things that we need to do in order to make Black History Month more relevant is to highlight African-Americans who are still living that are making major impacts on society. And not only living, but she's in Philadelphia. Yeah, that's even more. That's awful. And I have to be honest, I dug, I couldn't get a lot of immediate, I, as you know, I like to obsessively break down history of who they are. There wasn't, there was some basic facts on Forbes 500 page. I want to go over because I feel it's important to understand who she is. Okay, let's do it. Alice Stanford is a Philadelphia based pediatric surgeon and the founder of her own medical practice, Real Concierge Medicine. I've never heard of either. Neither have I. In 2020, Dr. Stanford saw reports that the city's black residents were dying from COVID at higher rates than others and vaccinated at lower rates. That spring, which is three years ago of 2020, she founded the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium to bring free COVID tests and treatment to Philadelphia's Black and Brown communities. I knew nothing about this. No, no. I mean, it's sad three years later and this is brand new information to me. But we're working on it now. We're talking about it. We're honoring her. Stanford and the BDCC, were they distributed COVID vaccines to Philadelphia's hardest hit zip codes and offing outpacing the city's own vaccination efforts. That I remember, but I didn't know who was doing it. No, I, I, these details are all brand new information to me. I wasn't aware that she was single-handedly outpacing the efforts of the entire municipal effort. She's a badass. Amen. And she was probably, we've talked about this one thing we want to do on this podcast is we want to talk local. We want to elevate local Philadelphians, what they're doing. And here's Dr. Alice Stanford, not only being a pediatric, not just a doctor, a surgeon. Do you know what level of education goes into that? An exceptional level, an exceptional level for an exceptional human being. I was blown away. So she's elevating in the middle 
of one of the most top critical time in this country, let alone Philadelphia. And I remember all of these people getting shots at the LaCroix Center at Temple. Yes. Matter of fact, I remember taking my own stepfather there. Unfortunately, because we didn't live in the zip code of Philadelphia, we weren't being serviced. But I remember the lines were long. People were making their way through. And the Assistant U.S. Secretary of Health, Dr. Rachel Levin, has called the BDCC a model that can reduce healthcare inequities around the country. And I say amen. Yeah. And let's tease this out a little bit. This has come from a place where especially in the black and brown communities, there's a lot of mistrust with the medical system in the sense that black people feel often that their care is a lower priority when they go into mainstream medical setting that somehow I'll just give you an anecdote of my own father who, while he was sick and during his last days, was convinced that... And may he rest in peace. Absolutely. Thank you. Was convinced that the medical doctors were going to experiment on his body and try treatments that they would normally try on their white patients. And so it's important to recognize these needs and these concerns and these fears within the black and brown communities because there has been a history of experimentation. Let's face it, for instance, I mean, very few people know this, that modern gynecology was born out of the work by a white medical doctor experimenting on female slaves without the use of anesthesia. That's where a lot of the foundations of how gynecology is practiced today, where that comes from. And everyone knows about the Tuskegee experiment, which the experiment was to deny African-Americans access to medical care in order to see the effects of sexually transmitted infections, how they would run. So there is a lack of trust and there is a lack of knowledge with regard to what is out there for the community to access. So it's a mix of various needs, concerns, and fears that I think we need to take in concern, perhaps discuss this on a future podcast. And that's why I emailed you that picture because she was out there with other doctors. I actually teared up a little holding hands crossing the street. Yes. And they, she was in the city doing what she needed to do. And I'm thankful that she was an African-American woman bringing that message to not so people didn't feel marginalized and I believe it was her that got people to go to Temple University some of it was let's be honest they needed they wanted to get the shot but she to me now three years later and shame on me is the face of the Philadelphia COVID response response she's a beautiful badass woman and I'm embarrassed I didn't know more about her it's it's I think it's just one of those things that there are a lot of suspicions as I alluded to before within the black and brown community. you know, And it, I remember when your father was sick and you telling me what he was afraid of and that's, you know, it's over 10 years. It's 10 years yeah, ago. Correct. In April, it'll be 10 years. And I was like, what's he talking? Now I know I'm sorry that he was so afraid and I'm sorry that people couldn't make him understand. But now I understand what he was thinking and I have to respect it. And to be fair, just just to set the record straight, some of the doctors, so, you know, you're it's managed care in a hospital. So it's a team of doctors. It's it's not a single doctor as you would have with your primary care physician. Some of the doctors were black, some of them were brown. So it's not necessarily a purely race thing. It's more of an institutional fear thing, if you bear with me. In the same way that the black and brown community is suspicious of law enforcement, it's a similar fear when it comes to medical institutions. There's a similar lack of trust. There's a similar lack of fidelity with the concerns of those institutions and the well-being of African-Americans, black people, Hispanics, Asians. There, There is there is a long history of a lack of trust. And I, this is kind of bouncing, but I was listening to KYW, but they were interviewed 
interviewing, I'm going to say a headhunter for police officers in the Philadelphia area, and they literally cannot get people to apply for jobs because the younger generation has been taught that you can't trust the police. I would agree. And, 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 one, and I think one of the reasons why there is a lack of trust is because it's the same thing that's in New York City, is that the cops in New York City, majority white, live on Long Island. The people that they police are majority black and brown, live in the Bronx, Queens, Staten Island. And there is this disconnect locally, as you mentioned before. Just back to Dr. Stanford, she was going to be considered for Philadelphia's next health commissioner, but now she was appointed to a more federal level. President Biden appointed Stanford to lead the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Region 3 office, which covers, I think, an expansive area, Delaware, the District of Columbia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia. That's a sizable country. That's that's sizable. It's not just a tri-state area. The appointment announcement highlighted Stanford's work in founding the Black Doctors Consortium in Philadelphia, which has made, as we just discussed, major strides in addressing racial disparities in healthcare since the start of the pandemic. As we know, she's a pediatric surgeon by trade. She also led the consortium in making house calls and operating COVID-19 testing sites. And as we said, when the COVID vaccinations first arrived, she ran the 24-hour site at the Licorious Center at Temple University. Could you imagine in the beginning of the pandemic, the phone calls she was getting and the nuance that it required to encourage people to get the vaccination? Absolutely. I imagine this woman was probably running 20-hour days. I don't know her private life. I don't know if she, even if she's not married or with a family, you still have other things you have to attend to. I can't imagine. It must have been, she probably was sleeping at Temple. Yeah. I mean, and I think at that stage of the pandemic, it was all hands on deck. It was it was a fire drill. Thankfully, it's much more nuanced now. And for a time, as we just discussed, she was in the running to be that Philadelphia Health Commissioner. When again, talking about marginalized treatment, when Dr. Thomas Farley resigned after he admitted to ordering the cremation and disposal of remains of some of the victims of the 19th, 1985 move bombings in 2017, which I'm shuddering without notifying the victim's family members. And this is what feeds into the institutional mistrust. It, it doesn't need to. It's, you can't. How could you? This is even 19, maybe 1965. This is in 2017. He was doing it. And that's that's <laughs> what I was saying to. It's within the black and brown community. There is for good reason, as you just alluded to with that example, there is this perception that white medical, white-led medical institutions do not regard black lives and that we're simply objects that are potentially disposable the way you throw out the trash. And so it's hard to decouple one moment in history to the next and say to yourself, well, the stuff that used to happen, that's no longer happening, except when the evidence comes forward that it is still happening. And so this woman, Dr. Sanford, has a huge, huge task on her hand. And it's not simply logistic. It's not simply research 
It's not simply scientific. A lot of it has to do with cultural psychology and breaking the pattern, breaking the link between the people and the medical institutions that are there to serve them. I don't even want to get started on the 1985 move bombings, but that was a dark time in American history that I clearly remember obsessively watching. I was in college at the time and, you know, college, you sit, you sit around all day, you're doing whatever. And I literally think from nine to five, we sat and just watched it in our little, I was on the radio station just out in the lobby. And my perception of move from 1985 to to 2017 is very different than what I thought about it 35 years ago, 40 years ago. Yeah, I mean, there's a broader cultural narrative that is broadcast literally through the news. And so then the way the news was certainly in the 80s and 90s is that there was a clear distinction between who the good guys were and who the bad guys are or were. For instance, within the white community, I think that's why there's such a struggle to come to an understanding that cops were doing really heinous things to black and brown people because there is a cultural narrative that whether it was in Clint Eastwood movies that black and brown people were the bad guys and they were the villains and the cops were the heroes. It's it's almost that old cowboys and Indians type of setup. Of course, the cowboys are the good guys and the Indians are the bad guys. The cops are the good guys. The black people are the bad guys. And that to make this relevant to the conversation we're having, black patients and medical institutions there's studies, and I'm just speaking anecdotally now, that black women, for instance, often don't get the same degree of maternal care as white women. When it comes to pain management, there is greater suspicion that black people are faking pain symptoms in order to get high, whereas there is no assumption with that regard to white people. And so in so many ways, the medical institution historically has abused black and brown people. This is why Dr. Stanford stands in the breach and hopefully is charting a course to a more positive future for both communities because black people need to see doctors. We really, really need to see doctors, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, strokes, vision problems, you name it. Health problems are far more rampant as a portion of the population in the black community than in the white community. So we need qualified medical professionals. And I know speaking as a white woman, I like the fact that Dr. Stanford is a woman because I know for me, if it's a male physician, I'm immediately suspicious. Yeah, and these are the concerns that have to be addressed. Let's personalize if you don't mind me asking, why are you suspicious of male doctors over female doctors? I don't ever, I wanna be careful stating this. I love my male family members, nephews, but I have a suspicion of white males that they're um, marginalizing my feelings and not taking seriously my concerns and I feel that some way they're trying to hurt me. And I think there's a similar fear and concern in the black community writ large. And if you want me to do something, have a female ask me, don't have a male. There you go. And so we have a long way to go from what I- And and I'm a white girl that grew up in a nice house in the suburbs and I'm suspicious of white men. Yeah, there needs to be an accounting for that fear and that fear has to be addressed and we need to come to some understanding of how we take into consideration the needs of a community that are communities that have been marginalized. And I have to be clear, if you're an over 50 white male, I'm not going to respond well to you. If you're under 45, I'm listening to you. Isn't that strange? Well, I think there's a huge generational shift. Let's look at it from the perspective of a group of men 
who grew up perhaps with the implied knowledge that their wives were simply an extension of their property. And, and, I, and I know that sounds hyperbolic, but you see this movement now in the online right, this sort of the anti-woke movement. And I don't even know what that word means half the time because I think it's just a pejorative that is used by a particular mindset of people as a pejorative without any real meaning or context. It's just, it's an F you to people that don't like. But anyway, the point is that there was this expectation that you'd get a job, it was your job, you'd get a house, it's your house, you'd get a car, it's your car, and you'd get your wife, a wife, it's your wife. And I think women were seen as an extension of the the holdings of the white man. Would you disagree with that assessment? No, not at all. And it stands to reason that those attitudes are when you don't see someone as a full human being, then you're going to limit the degree to which you interact with them. You you interact with them as, as almost as if they're like pets. Like you give them what they need, you feed them, you scratch their bellies, and then you send them on their way. And from discussing this with other women, that's an attitude that they felt towards many doctors. The doctors were either being creepy, and what I mean by creepy is like inappropriately sexual towards them or dismissive of them. Well, I think going to a doctor as a woman is different when you're under 40 because they're listening to you because they want to sleep with you. I won't disagree with that. I won't disagree with that at all. But if you're over 40, suddenly everything you have to say, because I watched my mother experience it too, you are marginalized so quickly. They don't care what you have to say anymore. So you, you're you're kind of in between worlds. But as I said, when they, they want to sleep with you, they're listening. When they don't, that's when they start to marginalize you and it goes along for ageism, race, it's all the same. It is all the same. It's about marginalizing people for immutable characteristics, whether it's race, as you said, race or gender or sex. And another interesting thing about, because we are course, as we always do, went off on a tangent. She did open a new primary care and behavioral health clinic in North Philadelphia last October, which I didn't know about, the Alice Stanford Center for Health. She has been quoted as saying she doesn't want any funds or resources to be blocked from folks who need it the most. She really wants it to be equitable distribution. And I give her credit because no one's doing anything in North Philadelphia, but that's where everyone needs the health. No, I agree. I think you, you put the you put the resources where the need's the greatest. I think that is the the common sort of ethos around how you treat marginalized communities. And Philadelphia was named the number one city in the nation for vaccinating people of color, largely African-American, of all urban areas in the United States. And that's attributed to Dr. Stanford. I think seeing black faces out there leading the charge. And I will just say as a as an addendum to what you're saying, the movement within the black church was also instrumental in making those changes. I think once the word got out that there was a need and that this disease, COVID-19, was killing black people, I think medical professionals like Dr. Stanford and I think also the black church really stepped up and encouraged their members to get vaccinated. It's the same thing when it comes to voting, leading the charge, making sure that their members are registered. I think a lot of churches led the way and gave the black community 
community the reassurance that the vaccine was safe and effective for them. The point being, as I've said before, it's an all hands on deck approach to solving these problems. And I think as much as we need all hands on deck, it's important. And I think I got to give you credit for highlighting Dr. Stanford because we also need leaders to make a change in the community. And beyond coronavirus testing and vaccinations, the clinic that she founded will provide other immunizations and flu shots, wellness checkups, mental health care, x-rays, and blood draws for lab tests. And I say amen. Let's face it. I mean, people are still suspicious of the flu vaccine or uh, yes, the flu vaccine. At the annual flu vaccine, people are still suspicious of it. So the idea that you can introduce a brand new vaccine that was developed in record time, safe and effective, just want to make sure I establish that. People's skepticism is a barrier that needs to be overcome. I didn't know that Philadelphia was that effective in its COVID response. Then I think as this podcast continues and we've discussed this, we really need to dig as people, as people on a podcast, as people in the community, we really need to understand that Philadelphia is really a game changer in so many ways. And let's be honest, you and I just kind of sit there rolling along, not understanding, but we're learning so much. And I definitely feel that sense of community. It makes me feel more hopeful as we talk about every week for the future of the city, of the state and of the country. And of their leaders and of the leaders. leaders, And and it has to be all hands on deck, but it needs to be the right hands. Yes, I think it's effective leadership is really what we're talking about. And I think the past three podcasts, whether it's your favorite trash bin or Mr. Boyer or now Dr. Stanford, these are prominent African-Americans or, you know, maybe with the trash men, not so prominent, maybe yet to be prominent African-Americans who are making a difference. And on that regard, there is no debate. They're making a difference. They're changing the way people see themselves and their community. And this is what this whole podcast is about. And this is what this month of Black History Celebration is about. It's about reconceptualizing the, the Black experience, not only learning from the past, which I think is important, but being aware of the present, which I think you and I would both agree that we weren't too cognizant of all the facets of all the pieces moving in the city, black leaders that are making a difference. Can I jump subjects though it's not appropriate? No, go for it. Let's let's do some free association. Before we finish and I jump subjects, I want to acknowledge how incredibly we both respect Dr. Alice Stanford. And I'm, I'm going to dig a little deeper into what she's doing currently, where she is. I'm just fascinated that we did not know it. And I say, you know, hands up to her. God bless her. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, I was sitting at home for those two months watching reruns of Reba. <laughs> I mean, it's... <laughs> Yeah. And and people are literally out there getting their hands dirty every day, trying to help the community, trying to save lives. I want to briefly talk, and I normally don't do this. What are your thoughts about John Fetterman? Very interesting subject. So concerned. That's the first word that comes to mind. You have someone who has a serious physical medical issue recovering from a stroke. And now someone who also has a very serious emotional, psychological issue with clinical depression. Maybe I don't want to admit what the answer should be. And that is maybe Mr. Fetterman, Senator Fetterman needs to step down. And I don't know if we're going to hold a special election or if there will be someone appointed to his seat. I'm not sure how it worked in the state of Pennsylvania, but my suspicions are he cannot continue in the role. I rallied for Fetterman. I was there for Fetterman. I was happy he won. But Pennsylvania is a big state. 
There is a lot going on now, post-pandemic. There is a lot to deal with, and I, I think he needs to resign. Yeah, listen, I get the impulse. Hold the seat because the friggin' Republicans are insane. And any advantage that you can give Biden to move forward is a significant advantage in terms of appointing federal judges and making the changes that we need in order to protect democracy. But I think perhaps Mr. Fetterman needs to be at home with his family while he heals his body and he heals his mind. And I think anything less than that, I wouldn't be honest. It breaks my heart to know that we could possibly, like I said, I don't know the exact condition if someone gets appointed as a temporary holder by the governor or if there's a special election and we could potentially lose the seat to a Republican. However, I think right now with the severity of his medical condition, Mr. Fredman perhaps needs to stay at home and resign his position. I have to be honest, and this is a compliment. I'm surprised you don't know every detail of what happens if a senator steps down. It's different from state to state. Sometimes there's a special election. Sometimes uh, the governor gets to appoint a seat holder, someone to fill the role. But it's something I can look into and perhaps we can address it in a future podcast. I'd like to talk about our sponsor today. Do we have to go into the fact that I was singing Fly Eagles Fly and they lost? I think we do. Yes, it's all your fault. It's entirely your fault. If you hadn't been so enthusiastic, if you just sat there and kept on watching Reba, you wouldn't have brought your bad luck and made the Eagles lose. I was all in. I was wearing a green sweatshirt to my part-time job. I was singing fly, Eagles fly. Every client I checked out, I was like, go Eagles. I blame myself for this loss. Yes, yes. And you should feel shame. Hang your head low. But I still want to encourage everyone to go to the Springfield Ale House Delco. Yeah, we can do that. Actually, now is probably the perfect time to go. You need to uh, drown your sorrows with a fresh ale. <laughs> they do have music. Please follow them on Instagram at the Springfield Ale House Delco. A lot of the sports are slowing down now, so thankfully on Fridays, they do have music. And again, they have the best appetizers and drinks, not only in Delaware County, but in the tri-state area. And even though our beloved Eagles have lost, we're now going into the Philly season. Spring training has started. I better not say go Phillies. We have about, what, 30 more games left in the NBA season. So before too long, we'll be celebrating March Madness as well as the NBA playoffs. There's a lull right now. There's a there's a little quiet in on the sports radar. So now might be a great time to take the family, take the kids, go grab some uh, chicken fingers and a cold one and enjoy yourself. Speaking of the Sixers, what's going on with uh, B? Like what's He's always hurt. Well, I mean, he plays hard. He's a seven foot two man and he plays like someone who's six feet tall. And when you do that, your big guys get hurt. That's just what the way it goes. Big guys typically don't have the shelf life of a smaller player. The biophysics of their body just don't lend itself to staying healthy and having a long career. It usually starts with the feet and then goes to the knees and then the shoulders and they fall apart early, unfortunately. Well, in spite of, you're right, Nick, we're kind of in a lull of sports, but please call the Springfield house 484-472-6742. The address is 773 West Sprawl Road, Springfield, PA, 19064. Of course, it's in the heart of Delco. Woohoo! Go Delco! Nick, you're from Delco. Just admit it. I, I know not of what you speak. Follow them on Instagram for all the updated menus, specials, and also on Facebook. Let's give a little Springfield, you know, love to our Springfield Alehouse. I would agree with that 100%. 
And then next week, we're going to be back to being sexy, Nick. Yes. I'm excited. Are you saying you're bringing sexy back? I'm bringing sexy back. We're going to discuss the 50 years of hip hop, of course, in a very abbreviated version. This should be fun. Do you know the first lyrics to Rapper's Delight? To the hip hop, the hippity hip hop, don't stop. Bang, bang, boogie, up, jump the boogie, boogie to the boogity beat. Now what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat. Okay, I think and that's enough. I, I think I think ears are bleeding all over the Delaware Valley. I still stick by my theory that hip hop started in 1980. I'm going to prove myself wrong next week. Okay. All right. So you're going to do the walk of shame once you're proving yourself wrong. Correct. Please right. join us next week on the White Bikini. Please follow us on all of your favorite podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Apple Music, and please join us next week.